You're listening to The Wannabe Minimalist Show with Deanna Yates, episode number 97. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Sarah Bren, a licensed clinical psychologist and mom of two who is sharing her tips and advice when it comes to simplifying parenting. We talk about losing yourself in motherhood, parenting through tantrums, and how to transition as your children get older. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. Welcome to Wannabe Clutter Free, formerly Wannabe Minimalist, the podcast for busy families who are tired of the chaos, fed up with being overwhelmed, and ready to enjoy life again. Each week, we talk about how to let go of the clutter so that you can focus on the things that actually matter. And it's not just physical clutter. We talk about the mental and emotional stuff too, because if it's holding you back, it's time to ditch it. I share what I've done in my own life to declutter, organize, and calm the chaos, but you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's practical, doable, and simple for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, my wannabe minimalist friend. Welcome back to the show. I'm thrilled you are here with me, and I am so excited to be bringing guests back on this show. Each guest inspires me to learn more or think about things in a new way, and learning new things is one of my guiding principles in my life. I feel like if we are not learning, we are not really living. I hope you find these guest interviews as helpful as I do on your journey to living a more intentional life. Today, we are branching out from talking about the stuff in our homes and focusing on the relationships in our homes, in particular, the parent-child relationship. And of course, this is not my area of expertise, so I brought in an expert. Dr. Sarah Bren is a licensed clinical psychologist and mom of two whose passion is helping parents find their inner confidence and raise healthy, resilient kids. She is the host of the podcast Securely Attached and the creator of the website drsarahbren.com, where she offers resources such as guides, workshops, and digital courses. She is the co-founder and clinical director of Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Pelham, New York, where she treats parents, children, and families. Sarah has such a calming presence, and you can tell that she practices what she preaches. It was a fun conversation, and I learned more about attachment parenting, gained confidence in some of the techniques I have been using in my own life, and I found encouragement for the developmental stages that are awaiting me as my daughter grows up and matures. So give it a listen, and when you're done, head over to wannabeclutterfree.com slash 97 to get the show notes for today's episode with links to Sarah's website and podcast. Again, you can find it all at wannabeclutterfree.com forward slash the number 97. And now let's get on to our conversation. All right. Well, hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Wannabe Minimalist Show. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. So we've got a little bit of, well, I've already introduced you, but I want you to introduce yourself a little bit. This one's a little bit different. We're going outside of the stuff scope and dealing a little more with life today. So Sarah, why don't you tell me about yourself and the listeners about yourself and then what led you to your journey of helping parents? Well, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a mom of two. I've got a four and a half year old and an almost three year old. So I'm deep in the parenting trenches myself. And it was kind of when I started becoming, when I was, became a parent and before I became a parent, my clinical work was really working with adults with chronic, tra uh, chronic trauma, like chronic childhood trauma. I realized when I was having my children and like working on, you know, learning about their emotions and raising these healthy whole people, 
I was like, wow, a lot of the stuff that I do with my adult trauma patients, where I'm helping them kind of reverse engineer some of their trauma and their early life experiences with caregivers, a lot of that work is reminiscent of some of the themes that come up in parenting, right? Validating our children's emotional experience, the full range of it, helping them feel like real whole people with a point of view and a perspective that is worth paying attention to and being curious about, giving them a sense of agency to figure things out on their own and make their mistakes. So sort of like scaffolding and supporting their growth, but not necessarily like filling up an empty vessel with, you know, more of me and giving them like emotion regulation skills and, you know, helping them develop their sense of self as separate from me, but, uh, or, you know, their parent, but also as like connected to their parent, this like attachment relationship being like the vehicle through which really amazing parenting can happen. And I realized kind of, I was like, wow, if I can help parents understand some of these fundamental building blocks of child development, of attachment theory and secure attachment relationships in early life, then I could help parents raise kids who don't end up needing me for therapy in their thirties and forties to, to, you know, heal from like really chronic trauma or even like just life, you know, like not everybody who goes to therapy has been through trauma. You know, sometimes it's just, I didn't feel seen enough. I didn't, I didn't learn skills to regulate my emotions enough because maybe my parents didn't understand my emotions or got triggered when I had my emotions. So they shut down or they got big and I didn't like learn the skills. So long story short, I really pivoted to working with parents, to helping them develop some really secure attachment relationships with their kids and make parenting just feel more pleasurable for them and more effective and have it be sort of an easier way to get kids to cooperate and build empathy and develop emotion regulation skills. Okay. So we're talking, so normally on my show, I talk about decluttering and organizing and creating systems for your home. And this is more talking about kind of not decluttering emotions, but kind of organizing your parenting almost in a way where you can simplify it and bring intention and just systems almost to it as well. So that you are mm -hmm. creating this, you know, this path uh, to make things a little bit easier. Let's talk about that a little bit. So how do you think we can simplify parenting? Because if we're talking about living intentionally, maybe simplifying our life, simplifying the, the things we have going on, what is one way we can do that just to kind of bring that um, intentionality into our parenting? Yes, I, that's a terrific question. And I think then this is sort of the way that I kind of approach parenting in general is the parent-child relationship using that connection as the vehicle through which we kind of administer all of our little parenting interventions, that can create sort of like a guiding compass, a very simple guiding compass that helps us to kind of get rid of all of these like scripts for like, if this happens, say this, if this happens, do this, if this happens, do that. It's like, no, just tune into your kid, learn to hone your capacity to read their cues, not just their behavioral cues, which is important, but kind of what's underneath that behavior. Like if my kid is, you know, stomping around and pouting and kind of like being really grumpy and like just poking at stuff, you know, you know, when kids get in that space where like, they're just looking for what feels to us, like looking to push our buttons or looking to pick a fight or looking to be difficult. If we can look under that sort of ex behavioral expression of what I believe is a 
physiological state of like dysregulation of like, I have this uncomfortable feeling in my body and I don't like it. And I really need to show you how uncomfortable I'm feeling by kind of poking and pushing and uh, to be curious about that and to go beneath the behavior to the emotional or physiological state and be kind of connected to attuned to our kids cues to be able to say, you know what? I think they need, maybe they're, maybe they're really tired. Maybe we need to like slow things down today, or maybe they're, they have, they're having a conflict with the kid at school. And, you know, maybe I need to check in with them on that, or maybe they're just, you know, they need to release. Maybe we need to go do something outside, or maybe they need to actually like scream and have a meltdown. You know, maybe they're, they're looking for some way to release this uncomfortable pent up energy. And I think when we use that parent-child relationship and that attunement to be able to say, like, I can kind of you read my kids' cues and have a lot more information from those cues to give me the framework, you know, tell me what's my next step in parenting. Like that really simplifies things. We Google a lot less when we do that. We, you know, follow a lot less like a million parenting people on Instagram that all have different things that they're saying and like they contradict themselves. And then we're like, wait, hold on. I was, was I supposed to do that or that or that? I don't know. Like it's kind of trusting ourselves and our child and tuning into that relationship. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. The curiosity, the just taking a step back and knowing it's not about you. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the things you said there that really stuck out to me because it can be so hard in the moment, especially if they're triggering you or they're, like what they're saying is really just making you feel crummy. Oh, mm -hmm. I've had those moments. My, my daughter is definitely my mini me. She has made me a much better person because it has made me like take a look, you know, almost in a mirror or, you know, sometimes of like, okay, I get this. It's not about me, you know, and diving a little deeper. Okay. So, let's jump then into like that parent-child relationship. So how can we make sure that we're not losing ourselves? This might be kind of a bit of a jump and maybe we should, I don't know, take a step back. But I do feel like a lot of times we go from one to the other, right? We mm -hmm. were a single person, then you know, we were in a relationship or we were with a partner, or we were married or whatever it is, whoever helped us get this child into the world. Now we are a parent. And how do we make sure we don't lose ourselves? Because I do feel like that I run across that problem a lot of people feel like they just they don't know what they want. Because I talk to a lot of people about like, okay, well, what do you want your home to be? How do you what do you want your life to be like, so we can create this home that you want? And they kind of feel lost. So yeah, Maybe you can help us with that. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I don't think it's such a leap, like between okay. this idea of like the parent-child relationship, if that's our kind of compass, right? And our goal is to tune into that. Well, then there's this inherent trust that our child is like this full being who's going to give us information, right? We are not, like I said before, they're not this empty vessel that we fill up with like us and our ideals and our goals and our visions and our wishes and our hopes. Like, if instead we think of it as like, this is a relationship, a two-person relationship with two whole people in it, you and me, and it's complementary and it's connected. And there's this like beautiful dance that we could do. It could be a messy dance sometimes where we're like dancing around something icky, but it can oftentimes be like something really kind of connected and in sync with one another. But there's this inherent idea. I'm me. You're you. I'm me. We're two separate people. 
I have needs. I have desires. I have parts of me that are not necessarily related or connected to the parts of you that you're feeling in this moment. Like I like to go get coffee with a girlfriend sometimes without you, my love. (laughs) And I like to go get my nails done without you, love, (laughs) you know, like, or I have a passion about this work that I do and I spend time away from you to do this work. And that's hard. And I miss you when I do it, but we are separate people. And I have, and I show up for myself and I do things, whether I'm a stay-at-home mom or a working mom or some hybrid in between that I have, I honor that I am me. And in doing that, I'm modeling for my child how to honor themselves fully and wholly too. And it's not about like, oh, I'm just picking between you or me. Sometimes in the moment, it can feel that way because we have to sort of make a choice in a moment. But in the grand scheme of our lives, these are mutually beneficial relationships to build. My relationship with myself and my relationship with my child, having both be solid and hopefully relationships with other people too, right? My relationship with my partner, with my family, with my friends, modeling healthy relationships that we prioritize and give space for, including the relationship with ourselves, especially is great for our children to see. And so I think that, and that's how you don't lose yourself because for you're right. Like it can be, we can get lost in parenthood. Definitely. It's so easy because it's so all encompassing. We were talking and earlier before the show started and my daughter is actually home today. It's the first time she's had to stay home from school in a very long time. And so we're all trying to just, now it's a new dance for us today. So, you know, it's so funny because we can plan and you can have your good intentions and you obviously set all these things out, but sometimes it just doesn't, you just got to roll with it. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. go how you anticipate it going. So, okay. Wonderful. And I, I feel like I went through that a little bit just because it can be so all encompassing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, I just had to kind of get back out there and start trying new things. Do you have any tips for how, if you have kind of lost yourself to kind of start to get back to that? I don't know if that's within your house or not, but (laughs) totally. And well, I think first of all, we have to normalize that we do lose ourselves. There's a bit of a normative loss of self in parenthood too. So it's not like Yay. You know, if you found yourself, <laughs> right, right. I mean, like I coach parents in this all the time and I too, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to eat today because <laughs> I've just been running around like dealing with all of my children or I'm eating like their scraps of crust, literally that they make me cut off their toast. And I'm like, this is my breakfast. And you get this beautiful, like avocado toast. And I'm like literally eating crumbs because I <laughs> didn't make space for myself. So like, that's normal. And there's seasons of our lives in parenthood where it's more and less, and then it picks up again and then it relaxes. So it's like, let's just normalize that that's a phenomenon that exists and isn't necessarily developmentally inappropriate, right? Like our kids require us to be somewhat enmeshed with them because they're so dependent on us and they elicit that response in us and they should, right? That's their hardwiring biology eliciting us to help them survive in the world, right? We're we remember we're like at the end of the day we have these like primitive parts of our brain that say like I want to be alive. You mom, I know you keep me alive, so I'm going to do all kinds of things to keep you close to me. And that's that's attachment, right? That's attachment science. And it's healthy and it's normal. And even our brains change when we're pregnant. 
and in motherhood, like they've done brain scans of women who went when pregnant after pregnancy and much later in life compared to women who didn't have children. And our brains are different. We, we, our brains change. And one of the changes is that we, we tend to like lose like focus of like we get to, you know, we call it mom brain, but like, it's not a bad thing. Like we tend to lose peripheral attention and get laser focused on our children because our brains are hardwired to keep our, our species alive, right? If we have a child, we become very focused on keeping them alive. So we tune out a lot of the stuff that becomes unrelated to our children. So there's a, there's a neurological component to this too. But if we want to kind of challenge it a little bit, become aware of it, bring some intentionality to preserving our sense of self in relation to our role as a parent. Well, I think one is we kind of non-judgmentally notice it, say, hey, I'm spending a lot of time with my mom hat on. And one, that makes sense for all the reasons I just listed. And so I'm going to give myself grace and I'm going to give my kids grace. But also I can choose to shift that consciously, right? It's like our unconscious biological hardwiring is going to get us to like get stuck in parenthood and lost in parenthood sometimes. And our society sort of kind of reinforces that a lot of the time. So we've got that going against us. But if we can say just like the stuff you teach, I imagine, right? Like society wants us to have unbelievable amounts of stuff. We have to kind of choose to shift that consciously. Our biology wants, our dopamine receptors wants us to buy more stuff. That feels good. Dopamine hit, dopamine, you know, like we have to consciously say, I'm noticing that I have the urge to do this thing. How do I consciously say, okay, but I'd like to do this thing instead. How do I choose to do that? And a lot of it is like literally slowly practicing, bringing your attention back to it. Hey, you know what? I didn't eat breakfast today. Let me make sure that I carve out some time to have lunch. Or I know that I sometimes, you know, get lost in my children's, you know, stuff in, you know, especially around school or relationships. How do I start to remind myself they are really capable? They know how to navigate this stuff. Or if they don't, I want to help them learn how to navigate this stuff for themselves. How do I not solve all the problems for my kid? How do I not clear the path for everything for them and help them to say, how are you going to solve this problem and sit back a little bit and give them some space to figure it out, be an emotional support for them, but not necessarily like a bulldozer for them. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Don't be a bulldozer. Yeah. Cause you're not going to be there forever. Okay. How can we then kind of maximize those moments that we are present with them, that we are really intentional with our children? you know, do you have examples of how, what that means to maximize our caregiving moments? Yes. So, well, there's, and I I cannot take credit for this concept. This is a concept by um, a woman named Magda Gerber, who was the founder of a parenting philosophy that that's very influential in my work. It's not a psychological philosophy. It's just a kind of a way of parenting that was created uh, by Magda Gerber in the sixties called RIE or RIE resources for infant educators. And it's just a very like it. I feel like the reason why I identified it a lot when I was raising my kids was because I felt like the roots in it felt very much about attachment and attachment security and seeing a child as this like whole being and ha- holding space for their 
full range of emotions and giving them a lot of space to figure out the world on their own, like a lot of trust in your kid. And one of the things that Magda Gerber teaches in, in Rye is the, that there's sort of two types of ways that we fill up our kids with our presence and our attention. And there's wants nothing time and wants something time. When you have wants something time, that's like there's some type of connecting that we're doing, some type of an agenda I have. Maybe I'm changing your diaper or maybe I'm feeding you or maybe it's bath time or maybe we're getting dressed. Right. These are these are moments of caregiving. I need something from you, some type of cooperation and participation, ideally, you know, and but it's fill up time. And I think a lot of times parents think of those moments as I got to get through those moments to get to the fill up time right? Like the fill up time is all the time outside of all this work that I have to do with my kid. But when we think about caregiving moments, even want something moments, like I think the, yeah, parents think I got to get to the want, want nothing time where I can just be with my kids, but the want something time is fill up. So if we can use these fill up moments to be intentional, to let the diaper change last a couple extra minutes, ask them to participate, you know, and if they're really little, maybe that means you're just talking to them and narrating the process, telling them what's going to happen next. If they're older, maybe you're having them fasten one of those tabs of their diaper. If they're way older, right? Like you've got an eight-year-old. So like what kind of caregiving moments are you engaging in with her? Maybe it's when we are picking out your clothes for the next day. How can I be present and connected? Keep my phone in the other room, spend a few minutes making it playful, making it connected being there for that, like not thinking of those as tasks to finish so we can get to the good stuff, but to be able to say, okay, I'm going to do this work with my kid anyway. Why not make it double duty, right? Why not make it a time that I'm accomplishing a task, but also filling them up so that outside of those caregiving moments, my child is more filled up. Yes, we really do want to make sure there's wants nothing time in our day with our kid where we're just like with them, with no agenda and present. But then outside of those moments, we don't have to be filling up every moment of them of their day with our connection. You know, in in Rye, when you're not doing caregiving and you're not doing a little bit of want something time or wants nothing time, it's play. You let them be. You let them explore their environment. You sit back and observe. So we're not always entertaining our children or stimulating them or providing them the solution to every problem. We're, we could take a step back and then you have space for you. And so that I think is a very efficient way of parenting, of looking at times where we're going to be with our kids. We got to do the work. Mm-hmm. How do we make that connected and, and, and pleasurable and playful and fill them up? And then you've got a child who's filled up. They don't need you to then continue to, I'm not saying like ignore them for the rest of the day. <laughs> no. <laughs> like I've done not. my job, peace. Right. But like- <laughs> You know, if you do that regularly, you will see a shift in the amount of needs your children are going to come to you with. Right. I love that. Make the caregiving moments the good moments, right? Like it's very intentional, right? And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the things I love about it is it is that moment of, right, you're doing it anyway. So take a minute, make the mind shift to say, this can be fun right? How can we make this task fun? How can we make this a moment that we will both enjoy instead of just doing it and then make it a good moment? That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. We will be right back. And now back to the show. 
Uh, yeah, total. And mind you shift see over a here lot too. less <laughs> resistance from kids. Yeah, you know we all know toddlers who like hate the diaper change. Yeah, or hate getting dressed, and it's like I'm not saying this will cure that problem. Your children will no. still sometimes like I've been doing that with my my I I had done this type of collaborative caregiving with my daughter from birth, and she just didn't didn't like laying on her back. She didn't like that prone position to be diapered. So there was always like tons of like wriggling and wrestling. But like what I I would just follow her lead. Right. I would say, okay, she doesn't like to be on her back. I'm not going to hold her, pin her down to do her diaper. I'm going to let her get on all fours or stand up. Now we'll do the diaper changes on the floor. And, you know, I'm I'm modifying it a little bit to accommodate where she is in that moment and what she is showing me she needs that moment. But I'm still holding the limit like we're still we're still changing the diaper. Right. (laughs) So I'm just saying, like, even if you do this, it doesn't mean you're never going to get resistance around certain caregiving moments, but it's a lot less, a lot less. Hmm. Love it. That's great. One of the other terms I hear a lot with, uh, you know, the kind of this intentional, simple parenting, attachment parenting is this idea of co-regulation. So for those of us that are not in this space on a regular basis, <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, So yeah, co-regulation refers to using two bodies to regulate another body, right? So like we, when I talk about tantrums or meltdowns or other types of dysregulation, I'm like for an eight-year-old, maybe they're not having tantrums, but they're in one of those like hurricane like moods. For sure. Like I'm home from school, like, ugh. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's dis. Those are all types of dysregulation, and dysregulation refers to the nervous system. It really means we're in fight or flight, right? It means that you know the parts of our body that have detected some type of threat, discomfort. There's a physiological response to that. We have this like kind of like agitation, activation in our nervous system, and it, in very little kids, it often looks like tantrums and meltdowns and like other dysregulated behavior, like hitting and pushing and screaming and all that kind of stuff. In older kids, it looks a little bit more sophisticated, but it's still, it's like, you can feel that icky feeling. And so, and even seven and eight and nine-year-olds can have tantrums, right? Like they have those breaking down moments. We as grownups still can have tantrums. have tantrums. <laughs> Definitely still have tantrums. It's so funny. I always get asked from parents, like, when, am, when are the tantrums going to stop though? At what age? And I'm like, um... I still have tantrums, so I don't know. I probably never, right? <laughs> our frontal lobes, which is the part of our brain that kind of regulates, yeah. is it's not fully developed until 26 for most people. So we have a long time and, and it gets way worse in adolescence. And because I say, I'm way concern. past 26 and I still have those moments where I'm just like, ah, just, ugh. you know, right. sometimes life just gets to be too much. Right. Well, it's funny because like we, I mean, as parents, and this is the thing about co- co-regulation is it's contagious. Dysregulation is contagious. So the flip side is regulation can also be contagious, right? If we know dysregulation is contagious, I can, when you're dysregulated, I feel it in my body. I get agitated. My threat detector goes off and says, Hey, threat, fire alarm, fight or flight, right? We as parents get dysregulated very easily by our kids dysregulation in part because we're working with the same neurological equipment. Uh Like there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is our threat detector. And when our kids are exploding, our threat detector is going off and saying, fire. And so we get dysregulated. It's funny. I actually have a workshop that I'm doing later this month called Be the Calm in Your Child's Storm, which is literally just a deep dive in self-regulation for parents. And then 
the follow-up for that is like this course called the science of tantrums, where I'm going to be talking about like everything, all the neuropsychology of dysregulation hmm. and then, and how we can use our calm nervous system. Once we figure out how to calm it down, we <laughs> can use our calm nervous system to communicate safety to our child's amygdala to help them turn that fight or flight response off and come back down to what's called a parasympathetic. So sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight response and our parasympathetic nervous system is our rest, digest, sort of the down regulator. So we help them get into that calmer state, but we first have to tell their amygdala, hey, false alarm, you can turn that fire alarm off. And the way we do that, because the amygdala is not a language-based part of our brain, we have to show the amygdala that through nonverbal communication, like tone, facial expressions, body language, sort of a calm, slow, rhythmic cadence to our movement and our voice, less words because words are stimulating. And when we're dysregulated, we don't really want a ton of words coming at us. So that's co-regulation is sharing, is communicating safety through your calm, regulated nervous system to another human being's nervous system to communicate safety so they could turn off that threat response. That's what co-regulation is. Got it. Well, I'm super excited that I asked that because I I had no idea. Anyway, that was great. So I'm glad I asked that question because I know <laughs> that lots of people probably were wondering the same thing. We talked a little bit about, well, that was just more about like tantrums and, you know, obviously as we always have moods as we get older and we still are going to have those. But uh, we were talking a little bit about my daughter's age. So are there different things that I need to focus on as she gets older, though? You know, does that does my focus shift or is it kind of just tweaking how I approach these things? Yeah, I think it's, it's confusing for parents because as kids get older, their developmental tasks shift, right? So when they're really little, their developmental task is to, to create that secure attachment bond with their caregiver. So they're going to increase their chance for survival, right? They're very focused on the parental relationship as they get older and they move closer towards adolescence, but this happens way before adolescence, their developmental task shifts from creating that safe relationship with my caregiver to keep me alive to I need to create social relationships. I'm more interested in peers. I'm learning who I am as a person in the world. My identity is forming and my identity forms in relationship to other people because we are very socially oriented species based on everything I'm talking about. We're like super interconnected. Our nervous systems are talking, our brains are talking. And so, but our, our focus as we get older shifts from our parents to our peers, and that gets very, very heightened in adolescence. But even at eight, nine, 10, you're starting to see them move towards peers and parents can misinterpret that very natural developmental shift as a sign. Oh, they don't care so much about what I have to say anymore. So the relationship is not as important anymore. And that's not a tool that I have at my disposal anymore because they're really preoccupied with their friends, which is what it does look like on the surface. And it is true to some extent, but the relationship is always going to be their anchor. So you can use your relationship with your child to help them process all kinds of things. You know, I always say like, when we create this really safe relationship with our kids, where we accept all emotions they have, not all behaviors they have, the really important distinction, right? You can be angry. You can be so mad. I want to help you understand that feeling. And I want to validate that feeling and give you lots of things that you can do to help cope with that feeling. I'm not going to let you hit me. I'm not going to let you hit anybody else. 
I'm going to stop you from hitting. And with very little kids, I don't necessarily punish hitting. I stop hitting. I hold that as my responsibility. Oh, you're showing me you can't be safe with your body. I'm going to move you over here and I'm going to sit with you and help you calm down until you can be safe again. That is, in my opinion, more effective at teaching kids what to do with their anger than to punish just the behavior because they don't distinguish the behavior and the feeling. We have to kind of take it as a package deal. And I think focusing on the feeling is so much more valuable um, from a teaching perspective. But if you do this kind of work with your kids, even if you have it, even if this is the first time you've ever heard of any of this and your kids are older, you know, this is not something that you can't do now. That's but what I was start- going to get at. It was like, what happens if now people are listening to this and they're like, oh, crud, what, what did I do? I missed out. So that was going to be my follow-up question. So awesome. Thanks for going yeah, there. Because yeah, mean, what happens if their- you feel behind? Yeah. So if you feel behind, first of all, just know, like, first of all, I say this every time I give like a workshop or anything, because I like will teach something and parents will be like, oh, should I have been doing that? Like, and I'm like, don't worry, right? We, if you beat yourself up for having not done something you didn't know you could even do, like, what is the value in that, right? Talking about intentionality, right? Choosing how you want to show up in the world, choosing how you want to create a life, beating yourself up for something you didn't know about isn't really have going to serve you much, right? We are always doing the best we can with what we have knowledge of in the moment. So just say, hey, new information, fantastic. Let's start here and start learning a little bit about emotion regulation in older kids, right? How do I connect, communicate to a, a, an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old? Oh man, you're having a feeling right now. I think I know what that feeling is. I think you're really angry. And not necessarily solving their problems, but focusing on the feelings. Not necessarily honing in deeply on the behaviors, but going to the feelings. I'm trying to think of like books for older kids that would be relevant to this, but I'm drawing a bit of a blank. If I think of any, I'll share with you. Yeah, send them to me. We'll put them in the show notes. Not yeah. a problem. But I think there's never a, you're never too late at telling your kid, I am connecting to you in this feeling and I know what it is and I validate it and I accept it and I can help you cope with it. And I know, and I trust you can cope with it. Now I say that knowing it is very, very, very hard as a parent to do that. If we're super pissed at our kid for being so obnoxious and like, oh, you are just being such a you know, you're just being so miserable or so annoying or so mean, like what is wrong with you? And I think if you're asking yourself either to yourself or out loud to your child, what is wrong with you? It's a good chance that you're dysregulated too, right? You're flooded with frustration or fear or anger or rage. And so it's a good time to just do some self-regulation and say, I'm going to calm myself down. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a step back. And maybe once I'm calm, I can sort of get some clarity and sort of perspective and say, well, I wonder why my kid was feeling that, behaving that way. What might be going on for them? And getting curious. I think curiosity is an unexpired, it doesn't expire as a parenting strategy, no matter how old your kid is, being curious about why they are doing the thing that they're doing, giving them the benefit of the doubt and assuming there's a reason and being curious about that reason is a really good place to start. Oh. Thanks. That was really good. I really, I'm so glad. No, I mean, like it was just helpful, right? I mean, I love that idea of just putting curiosity first. And just if you look at something with that lens, which is the lens that we like encourage our children to look at everything with, right? Like right. we encourage our young children to be curious. We, you know, want our children to go out and investigate and think about things. But 
if we can in turn do that for ourselves and turn that to our children and just be curious about their lives and not in a snooping kind of way, but if you come at it from curiosity, they'll be willing to share versus putting up those walls of like, you just want to, you just want to get into my business. You know, like I'm getting like, not that my daughter's there quite yet, but I'm just anticipating right. like in a couple of years, once puberty hits, like stop getting in my business. I just, yeah, you know, being more curious about like, so what happened? You know, what's going on with your friends or, you know, that kind of stuff and just being more compassionate. Right. Really, instead and of having, coming at it from anger. Absolutely. Ourselves. And having developmentally appropriate expectations, right? Like if you right. have an eight-year-old and they're like, mom, I don't want to talk to you about this. Like to be able to say, like you said yeah. at the beginning, like don't take it personally to be able to say right. that makes sense for her right now. Right. And that's not her being rude or being mean or rejecting me, but her right. playing around with this role of feeling really separate from me. Like yeah. as we want them to, right? Separation right. and individuation is a huge developmental task of this time period. Seeing themselves as this separate and individual being, that's, right. we want that. We want to honor that. Yeah. Knowing that when she's acting out that way, it's probably because she's scared or she's embarrassed or she doesn't really quite know exactly what she feels, but it just doesn't feel good. And mm -hmm. I, I just don't know what to do about this. And I'm not proud of it. Or I don't feel comfortable really sharing because I, I feel like you're going to like look at me a different way or, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. I think a lot of it comes more from that versus being angry toward their parent, right? I mean, I'm always right. telling her that like when people are mean to you or when they're angry, it has way more to do with them than it does to with you. And if I'm telling her that, how can I not be accepting that when she's doing it to me too? It has way more to do with her than it does with me in that moment. Yeah. You know, or whatever's going on. Like she just it's not a reflection of the relationship back to me, right? She and and what I had somebody tell me one time that like cuz she would be like when she was a toddler, she would be so good for everyone else. And she was just like such a little light. And then she'd come home to me and just be a total terror. She would just unleash the craziest emotions toward me. And they said, that is because you are her safe space. And mm -hmm. she feels like yes. she can be whatever she needs to be when she's with you because you are the person that she can be her most self with like just the mm -hmm. most of who her she messiest, is the messiest realist, the whatever self. yeah and i was like okay and once i heard that it really helped kind of shift my perspective because yeah it was really tough for a little bit i was like what the hell man like yeah. she's so awesome for everyone else but i just feel like i'm the dumping ground and they were like it's because she needs you to be able to be there and be that net for her when she's just feeling cruddy and she doesn't know what to do. And I was like, okay, I can handle that. I yeah. can. And because when on. you hear that, you soften. Yes. You can lean in. You can yes. have empathy for their icky stuff because you're totally. no longer in a defensive position. Like, why me? Why are you rejecting me? Why are you so mean to me? Versus, oh, you're hurting and you're showing me because you feel safe with me. I'm my whole body language changes. I lean totally. in. Absolutely. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that has that it's that kind of relationship building throughout life that has teens coming to us when there's a problem, right? Yeah. Being able to say, oh, you know, I actually feel safe talking to mom about all the scary, messy stuff. I don't always, right. I'm going right. to, you know, be like, mom, yeah. go away. <laughs> but then when real, when real, you know, S hits the yeah. fan, 
they do they do come because they say no matter what I know they're not going to go away right and that's important that's important that's what I'm shooting for all yeah. right Whew. well oh my gosh Sarah this has been fantastic I really appreciate the the chat and just everything we've talked about I think we've kind of covered a lot I don't want to get us off on too many tangents here because I know that um, this was really good and people are gonna have a lot to mull over here and think about and and I really appreciate the you know just kind of the honesty and the um, the real talk so yeah awesome lovely so where can people find you? Because I know that they are going to want to reach out and just find more about you. So where can they find you and what have you got going on right now? Yeah. Oh, awesome. So I I have a podcast called Securely Attached, where I go into a lot of these themes and I bring on interviews with people in this in this area talking about child development, maternal mental health, attachment science, all those kinds of fun things. I have a group practice in Pelham, New York, where I see families kind of at all points on the developmental timeline. So we work with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and pregnancy and postpartum. We see parents of young kids. We see children through the young adults. And then for kind of sort of education around this stuff, learning about these things and finding ways to like strategically put them into your practice as parents. I have courses, specifically one that is coming out very soon is the science of tantrums, which really is a deep dive into regulation, the, the science, the neuroscience of regulation and dysregulation and kind of how to respond to our children's dysregulation or their tantrums, first of all, calmly ourselves, but then also understand how to use really effective strategies before, during and after tantrums to reduce the presence of tantrums in our lives and nothing will make them go away. But how do we reduce the intensity, the duration, and the frequency of tantrums? And that is what this course is all about. So it's called the Science of Tantrums. And yeah, it's it's going to be open for registration, I think, in end of April. Perfect. All right. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we have links to those things in the show notes as well so people can check them out. Amazing. And one of my favorite ways to end each interview is with three rapid fire questions. And this first Amazing. one will be fun because we are talking about parenting really and not about our houses. But what does minimalism mean to you? I think the first word that comes to my mind is, is sort of like mindfulness or intention, like being present, thinking it through. Minimalism, I imagine, can look different for everybody. Absolutely. But we have to know what it looks like for us. So we have to kind of be mindful and attuned to like, what is my sort of, like I think of mindfulness as like, an, like a way of being in the world rather than like how clean your home is. Yeah. So that would too. be sort of how, how I approach it. Awesome. I love it. And then what is one of your favorite pieces of advice? It could be about parenting, psychology, life, and or anything that you'd like to share today that you might have not done so yet. Oh, yes. My favorite piece of advice about parenting and life in general is that the goal is not perfection. Like perf oh. perfection is suboptimal. Like I am a firm believer in this concept called good enough parenting, but it doesn't mean like settling because like, oh, I can't be perfect. So I guess I'll settle for good enough. The idea behind good enough parenting is good enough is optimal. That is the goal. If we strive for perfection, we will be incredibly frustrated with that because it's not possible. But also it creates like codependency and enmeshment and like this, like kind of it, it's not great. It's not actually healthy or optimal perfectionism. So being in this place where I, I live in the mess, I'm comfortable in the unknown. I want to show up 
as best as I can, but I know that I won't always show up as my best self and that that is like perfectly acceptable. And there's so much value in modeling that flexibility and that resilience and that capacity to like shift it. Like you were saying, like sometimes things don't go as planned. How do I move with that through with like some flexibility and resilience? So actually I think good enough is the goal. It's the best. And I think not enough people are getting that message. Hmm. I love it. And I love how you lit up when I asked you that question. You were so <laughs> excited about it. So <laughs> I love it. I love the passion. And then the last one is what is making you happy right now or in this season of your life? Oh, my kids. Hmm. They, they're like a huge inspiration for the work that I do. And then I get to go, you know, spend time with them and be like, and not be perfect and totally mess up and have total like grist for the mill to talk about with people in my work and be like, you know, oh, this messy life of parenthood. <laughs> it's, it's real. Like, and, and it's, it fills me up. My kids fill me up. Oh, fantastic. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. We will have links to everything in the show notes. So please everybody check her out. And um, yeah, thanks for a wonderful conversation. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. You too. Well, what'd you think? I love how approachable Sarah is and her advice. If you are struggling with toddler tantrums or self-regulating your own emotions, she has some wonderful resources that can help. Personally, I found the validation that there are different seasons to life and that it's not only okay, but healthy and necessary to have my own life outside of my child really important. And that was actually my favorite for this episode. But of course, I already knew that, but it's always reassuring to hear it from the experts. So if you want to learn more about Dr. Bren and her upcoming workshop that she mentioned, you can find the links on her website and podcast securely attached in my show notes or on my website at wannabeclutterfree.com slash 97. Again, that's wannabeclutterfree.com forward slash the number 97. And that just about wraps it up for today's episode. But before I go, I want to take a minute to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this episode or found any episode helpful, please consider leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes my day and it helps me so much. I hope that you have a fabulous day and I will see you back here next week for a solo show where I will be discussing tips for organizing your kid's room. I just went through my daughter's room again, so I'm sharing lessons from my latest organization project. It should be fun. I'm Deanna Yates and this is the Wannabe Minimalist Show. Cheers.